Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. What we're going to do right now, and we've really tried to do this, we tried to have every guest today be a Red Sox fan, and we've massively succeeded with Megan Green, the only guest I know who has Red Sox vans when she's styling on the weekend at Harvard. And, of course, we welcome her as a global chief economist for Kroll Institute. Thrilled she's with it. The, the news is so important, Megan. I'm going to avoid the baseball right now. The makeup of this trade deficit, as Lisa mentioned, is it an export differential or an import differential that gets us to this record statistic? Yeah, so as Lisa highlighted, it's a bit of both. And it is really interesting that it's happening as these talks are just kicking off uh, between the U.S. and China. China, of course, hasn't held up its end of the bargain in terms of the trade deal that we had struck. They haven't bought nearly the amount in value terms of goods that they had promised to. That seemed forgivable in the throes of a global pandemic that, of course, originated in China. Uh, so they had massive shutdowns. Um, the best thing about the pandemic might have been that actually there was an excuse for China not actually holding up its end of the deal. But that excuse has really waned. And so now the U.S. would like China to go ahead and, and hit the targets. It's a big question, though, about how they're going to get there or whether they're really incentivized. Okay. That's going to take forever. If the equation is Y equals C plus G plus I plus G plus X minus M, is the X minus M going to change American GDP quarterly over the next year? Is it enough to shift the larger parts of that algebra? So, no, I don't think we'll strike something that actually fundamentally makes a difference in terms of growth. And of course, most of the growth uh, right now is coming through the reopening um, and the peaks behind us, unfortunately. Uh, and I think actually the biggest impediment isn't really how much China's buying our stuff. The real impediment is going to be supply shocks globally. That's going to be the biggest uh, drag on growth in the second half of this year. And those those things go together, right? I mean, there is this question of the fact that we do have this trade mismatch and the fact that China uh, is perhaps in a better negotiating position with the U.S. simply because the U.S. wants to import all this stuff immediately. How much does this give a sense that the supply chain disruptions may last some, somewhat longer than people are currently expecting? Look, I think that even without this dynamic, this trade dynamic between the U.S. and China, these supply disruptions will be a problem for at least the next six months, possibly longer. Um, I think they should be uh, sort of eased up in the in the second half of next year, for sure. And so it feeds into this question about inflation and how much you think inflation is sustainable versus temporary. But also, I, we economists aren't very good at defining what temporary or transitory and sustained are. And I think if you're expecting inflation to go ahead and wane in the next three months, you're going to be really disappointed. Uh, if you're happy to sit through the next year and expect prices to be higher because of supply chain disruptions, 
things. And you think that's sort of a one off quirk of the pandemic, uh, then you might actually see inflation start to come down in the second half of next year. Although it's not just supply chain disruptions, it's also a shift in the Chinese economy with a push toward making a higher wage, toward bettering the middle class. And I wonder how much for decades we were importing disinflation, we were importing deflation from China with uh, cheaply made goods. Is that reversing now as the shift for Xi Jinping changes? Well, so that was the case as, uh, you know, the Iron Curtain fell and the Bamboo Curtain fell and we added billions of workers to the global workforce and Chinese workers were really cheap. That hasn't been the case for a long time. We just have been rising in China for a long time. Now we've had cheap work uh, coming out of Vietnam, Malaysia, other parts of Southeast Asia. Wages are rising there, too. So the question is, you know, where do we go next if we're looking for cheap labor. One is actually to machines. So there's been a ton of automation over the course of this pandemic uh, that should ease some of the upward pressure on wages, uh, certainly. And then secondly, there are other parts of the world with cheap labor. So if that's going to continue to be the model, which is to sort of offshore any production with cheap labor, and I don't think that is going to be the model, but if that's what we're looking for, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, North, uh, North Africa in particular, the Middle East, there's, there's a lot of room for that trend to run. So I, I don't actually buy the fact that we're running out of cheap workers. I think that we are restructuring the economy through a new uh, industrial policy that's actually accepted by both sides of the political spectrum right now. That means that we're not actually just going for the cheapest products made in the cheapest places. We're trying to onshore some of that work with industrial okay, policy. Let me ask you a Harvard question. This is an across Institute question. It's a fancy pants academic question, and I can do this in honor of Dale Jorgensen. How's our total factor productivity look right now? So we don't know exactly because that data comes out with a bit of a lag, but we do know that it's increased. So, you know, for the developed world, it was about 1% for the last decade. In the past couple of years, it's increased to around 2%, yeah. so around double that. In the U.S., it was 3% more, more recently we know anecdotally through surveys that a lot of firms have taken the opportunity of the pandemic to digitalize and automate a lot of things, which should fundamentally boost productivity. And, and, and it should boost productivity going forward. And then we also know there's a ton of legislation on the docket that's aimed at infrastructure spending, investment in human capital. That should continue to boost productivity. And the good thing about productivity growth is that you can have wage growth uh, and if you've got productivity growth as well, it doesn't need to be inflationary. But that might mean that the participation rate in the labor market continues to go down, at least the downward trend that we've seen over the past few decades. Is that what you're predicting, that people will be paid more if they are in the labor market, but there'll be a high proportion of people permanently out of the labor market? Yeah, look, uh, this gets down to the question of whether robots are taking our jobs or not, fundamentally. Um, and I'd say in, in previous periods where we had a bunch of innovation and everybody was worried that we'd all be automated out of work, it, it didn't happen. We generated jobs that are, we couldn't wrap our heads around. When we built highways and had cars, nobody thought about all the rest stops that would generate jobs, for example. So there may be an equivalent this time around as well. I think there will be structurally higher uh, sorry, a lower uh, labor force participation rate for a little while, in part just because certain certain industries aren't coming back. Uh, and so as a result of the shutdown uh, and the transformation of our economy through this pandemic, there's just going to be a lot of rigidities in terms of retooling and reskilling workers for sectors that are coming back. 
And unfortunately, I don't actually know a country out there that does a good job with that. So that is something that we should absolutely be focused on. And Tom, did we do the baseball thing? Have we done that yet? No, you can do you start want to do it, that John. now? Oh, no, John, you do it, please. Megan Green, Red Sox fan. Do you go tonight to Fenway? I, I don't actually have tickets tonight. So if any viewers want to give, give them to me, I would be gratefully <laughs> receiving them. Um, there we it's going to pour rain, unfortunately. But, uh, but Public I'm service announcement? Perhaps you should go with Tom. <laughs> we'll fly him up tonight. No, Anne-Marie's, I think Anne-Marie may be going. She told She's me she tickets. was $1,232. Is that how much it costs? To sit behind third base, yeah. Third base? How yeah, high one up? seat. Like right three there. rows behind third base. Three rows up. She's sitting in front of Stephen King. That's what can I say? Okay. Megan you know. Green, have you got any predictions? Yeah. I mean, Megan, give us some love. Come on. Yeah. I mean, I think the Red Sox are going to win. If not, because the best people root for them. Oh, obviously. Okay. <laughs> wow. That was convincing. Megan Green, senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and global she, chief economist she at studied, Cole Institute. She took a minor, John, at Harvard and, and John Kelvin. That's I think that here. they're going to win because the best people root for them. Right now, hugely anticipated, we speak with George Cervellis of Deutsche Bank. He has arguably the toughest job at the bank. It is Peter Hooper, it's David Folkert's Landau, it's Matt Lozzetti, and they're all churning away, and Ruskin and Cervellos have to figure out how to sort out the inflation dynamics, the economic dynamics, and what it means in foreign exchange. Mr. Cervellos joins us uh, this morning. What is your dollar call? Great to see you, Tom. Uh, so I think the risks are uh, you do see a moderately stronger dollar until the end of the year. Um, there is much more going on in the market than just the inflation story, which has dominated this year. Um, I was following with interest the interview you had with Mohammed El Arian um, just after the U.S. numbers last week, um, and he was very focused on the inflation upside. Uh, but at the same time, you had big downside growth surprises as well to those numbers. Uh, and I think there's three things going on uh, in this last quarter of the year. Um, number one, we're getting extremely pessimistic messages on the supply side of the global economy. Uh, one of my favorite examples is if you look at UK total hours worked, it's still 8% below where it was pre-COVID. So that's still a massive labor gap. And we're talking about rate hikes in the UK. Um, the consumer is just not gangbusters. So as John said before, this is not the same as Q1. We can see it in consumer confidence. The slowdown in spending was happening before the Delta wave. And you're just not seeing this right. drawdown in excess saving that people were expecting. So this weaker growth dynamic with higher inflation, I think at the margin is supportive of the dollar. Okay, so let's go there. Let's rip up the script here, folks. We can do that with George Cerevelis. On Sterling, how do you express that view on Sterling? If it's not cable, which pair is the most intelligent tradable pair for Sterling? So the UK is a fascinating example. It's at the epicenter of what's going on, where you're about to have, I think, a very sharp slowing in growth because you have fiscal tightening at the same time and the Bank of England hikes rates. Now, this is very, very different to the demand side uh, cycles we were used to, to, to experiencing. And I think the risk is you see UK inflows slow down, um, the growth side decelerate um, pretty quickly, and that would be negative for the pound. Um, now, the polar opposite story of that is places like Norway. Essentially, what you will see this quarter is a direct income transfer from the UK consumer to the Norwegian consumer, which benefits um, from these big rises in energy prices. So we like sterling, selling the pound against Norway, but also against the Swiss franc. Uh, and my colleagues have done some great work showing how the Swiss franc is one of the best safe havens 
in a world of rising inflation but falling growth. George, what are the lessons from trading, say, EMFX for some of these currencies in G10 right now? Are they applicable? Well, it's an interesting question and I think probably most immediately relevant to the UK because you do have this environment in EM where sometimes central banks try to hike rates, but the currency stays weak because you can't see those inflows. Um, and EM historically has been more vulnerable to these supply side shocks. We're now seeing it for the first time in, in DM. And I think it's very interesting. You know, at the start of the year, if I had told you the Bank of England could be hiking rates as soon as this year, you'd have told me the pound would be surging uh, and instead it's struggling. So this transmission channel, which usually a central bank hike does, as in strengthen the currency to push inflation down, is not working in the UK. And I think that asks all sorts of uncomfortable questions um, for the Bank of England. George, before we let you go, we have to deal with the S word because you did write it in a recent report that this environment is definitively stagflationary. How much hate mail did you get for using that word at a time of still robust growth? So um, it's interesting. We, we have a lot of internal debates uh, within research. Obviously, there's, there's different definitions um, of, of that word. Uh, but for me, the key point is not how you define a world, but the, the trajectory in inflation and growth. And one thing that I think hasn't materialized for those that have been espousing the so-called gangbuster narrative is you really haven't seen growth accelerate in the second half of the year. You're seeing a pretty sharp deceleration. So it's a very different playbook compared to the first half. Do you think the S word is a distraction though, George? The very fact that we have to talk about it because factually it's so hard, to, it's so easy just to turn around and say that's not what this is. Well, again, I think it is to the extent- Do you extent think that's the destination, that George? Or you think it feels like that right now? Do you think that's where we're heading? I, I think um, debating definitions is not as useful as observing that you're seeing a pretty sharp slowdown. And it's not just because of the supply side, it's because the consumer is underwhelming. But in terms of direction of travel, yes, I do worry. We have more growth slowdown coming, slowdown coming in the pipeline, both because of China, fiscal tightening in the UK and the US, importantly. So I worry that this mix continues and worsens. George, really smart note. Gangbusters ain't happening. Great to catch up. Thanks for coming on the show with us. George Saravelos there, Deutsche Bank Global Head of FX Research. Joining us now, Chris Morangi, Gamco co-CIO of Value. Chris, let's start right here. It smells like Q1 of 2021. It is not Q1 of 2021. What's the difference right now for you, Chris? Yeah, there are some key differences. Interestingly, in Q1, I think expectations for nominal GDP growth were probably something like 10%. There's still 10%, but the mix is different. Uh, there's probably more of a weighting toward inflation versus real growth. Uh, as we see supply chain issues crimp, real growth, uh, and those uh, inflation pressures persist and, and probably worsen. Chris, I have been dying to speak to you, to know what the value house that Gabelli built thinks about the gloom on revenues and margin compression. I want to know what you guys think we're going to see on revenues. Are they going to be better than good? I'm not worried about revenue. Uh, there's certainly plenty of demand out there pretty much across the board. Uh, the issue is, can that uh, demand be fulfilled? And we're seeing a lot of, obviously, we talked about it ad nauseum, bottlenecks and inability to, to meet that demand. Uh, and that, um, in many cases, has caused some, some margin compression. Companies have tried to pass through um, many of those costs, and, and, and many have pricing power, but they haven't been able to produce, uh, to pass through all those costs. And so the question is, how persistent will those margin pressures be? Are we at new levels for labor costs, for example, uh, for um, other natural resource inputs? 
Uh, and I think the answer is probably yes. I think once you raise wages, very difficult to take them back. So you know, over, over the next few years, probably going to see some some margin pressure uh, broadly in, in the market. What's being priced in? Are we being uh, pricing in peak supply chain disruption or are people concerned that this is just the beginning based on where pricing is right now? Well, you know, when you think something's priced in, it's, it's usually not. But we cl- clearly the, the move over the last month or so has been at least partly in response to a number of companies out there, particularly in the industrial area, warning about uh, what their Q3 is going to look like, saying they're going to be at the low end of their previously expected earnings, for example. So I think we're going to see more of that uh, as we go through earnings season. Some of it's priced in, probably all of it isn't. Chris, I want to talk about the banks just briefly. Where you want to sit in the financials at the moment, the kind of business models you want to own, the characteristics of those names, where do you want to be? Well, you know, generally, so, so banks performed well early this year, in part because there was an expectation that rates would go up, the, the curve would steepen, and that's generally good for borrow short, lend long, but also because they were conduits for growth, conduits for reopening, um, for more consumer spending, more house buying, et cetera. And, and I think that's been muted a little bit. Um, generally, in the financials area, we're looking for non-commoditized companies, companies that have some kind of a moat. Those tend to be the credit card companies, the American Expresses of the world, for example, which itself is a significant beneficiary of increased travel spend, for example, in uh, P&E. So um, that's generally where we, we've been historically, and it's where we want to be going forward. I've got to ask about autos. You know, Chris, it's where Mario Gabelli began as a security analyst looking at industrial, as Gartman says, things that fall on your feet. I've got to ask about the people going after General Motors trying to find value. Can hedge funds and stuff, can private capital, even with small amounts of percentage ownership, can they go after industrial America? Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, GM has found a new life as, a, as an ESG play. We, we do uh, have a sustainability fund, for example, that owns it, in part because of their commitment to uh, electrification. Mary Barra has, uh, has been pretty vocal about that, obviously. And, and, and it looks like um, it's for real. Uh, they are really investing in products to compete with Tesla and, and others and think they're going to be successful. The stock is cheap. Um, it doesn't will never escape its cyclical nature. Um, but uh, the cycle probably is in its favor uh, for the next five years. That's fascinating. So in other words, ESG considerations are a factor in what you put into which companies are potentially attractive, which could attract those ESG funds based on what their uh, footprint is? Yeah, there, I don't think there's any question that um, companies with good ESG reputation, good ESG scores uh, have attracted capital and in many cases have uh, garnered um, valuation premiums. And so we look for those, but we generally you know, do have some clients and some funds that are sustainability and ESG focused. And, um, and they, you know, there are certain requirements that have to be met. And, and GM actually, believe it or not, even though it's still relying on, on the ice, um, fits that. Got to leave it there, Chris. Always good to catch up, sir. Chris Morangi there of Gamco, the co-CIO of Value. He can do logs as well. Omar Aguilar joins us right now, Schwab Asset CIO and Head of Investments. Omar, I love, love, love what you say about the development of new walls of worry. For you and Lizanne Saunders, does that just mean go long? Well, you know, that actually means we got to continue to educate our clients on, you know, the behavioral aspect of the market, you know, which means, you know, there will always be uh, concerns. There will always, you know, you can always find a gloomy scenario at any given time. 
Um, you know, it is true that probably it's a little more difficult to think about the positives at the moment when you had a bad month like September. And it also on, this, on the same thing, the whole discussion about inflation, about, you know, gridlock in Washington, about supply chain disruptions, about labor market. It is very easy to continue to build that wall of worry. And that usually that information gets in the hands of investors and consumers. Omar, talk to me about recency bias, the temptation of extrapolating out last week's price action through the whole cycle. Omar, how do we avoid that? Well, it's, uh, it is a very natural bias. It's one of those uh, called cognitive biases that, you know, it is very well studied in the literature, which basically you just extrapolate your, your experience of the recent information, that's the call is recency bias, and you actually think that that's what is going to continue going forward. That happens in the bull market. That's what propelled bull markets. If you think about it, that is the whole idea of the FOMO effect, the fear of missing out. But it also works on the downside where, you know, people that have, you know, a bad experience, I think you were talking about earlier, you know, the significant uh, negative returns that we saw in individual names. Well, people extrapolate that and immediately gets the emotional bias to kick in, which gives them doubt of what, how to make decisions. So recency bias is a very common bias. It's one of the biases that, that has risen the most, especially you know, during the pandemic and in the process of getting out of the pandemic. That's the behavioral finance of the investor. What about the behavioral finance of the consumer as they look at higher prices and they say, you know what, maybe I don't wanna buy a washing machine because it costs twice as much as it did two years ago. Hey, maybe now is not a good time to buy a house. How much does this start start to bleed and ingrain itself into the economic moment and create a slowdown in consumer spending despite pretty robust savings. Well, we did we did see already that, you know, slowdown in consumer spending, you know, after the big, you know, push in demand, you know, at the beginning of the summer. So, Lisa, you know, the consumer spending slowdown happened even before, you know, we actually got into the full Delta variant. You know, the, there is a little bit of a hesitation on consumers to think about, you know, what may happen, you know, going forward. You know, there is another another uh, very interesting, you know, behavioral finance, you know, bias that is called the endowment effect, which means once you've got a lot of cash, you know, holding on, it is very hard for people to start thinking about it. Now, the good news, though, is that the consumers have delivered. You know, during this process of accumulating extra savings, they have actually delevered themselves to the point that they actually not as worried about, you know, higher interest rates as much as they were probably three or five years ago. So, Omar, so with that in mind, that actually assumes that, you know, with a little bit of a pressure on wage growth, and a little bit more of that, you know, drawing down of excess savings, the potential for consumer is maybe not, you know, as strong as people expected, but the holiday season going into next year, it is expected to be positive. Omar, how important, given what you just said, are bank earnings and their view into consumer borrowing, credit card lending uh, activity there in order to determine what the appetite is uh, for consumer spending? Well, it is it is it is important now. You know, banks are in the in the in the framework that we're talking about is obviously related to you know what the shape of the curve is, and as well as you know what the demand is for extra credit, as well as you know in general just the level of interest rate. So you know the process of what they have is definitely not as as strong as they were you know. Uh, in the beginning of this year, but certainly, you know, they're well positioned for for going forward because, you know, we we do expect that there's going to be a significant amount of extra demand for credit, especially as you know investors and consumers start to balance, you know, how much they actually have to draw from their credit and how much is still with a low absolute level of interest rates they can actually still use credit for. Omar, just to wrap things up, I hear a lot about the bar, but I want to talk about on the one side of it. 
the cyclicals, energy, banks. What you just said on banks is important. We've had a massive move in energy over the last month or so. Energy equities, not just the underlying commodity. I want to understand what you do with that position now, Omar. Is it something you sit on or are you looking to move into banks, banks which haven't really kept up at all with what's happened with energy equities? Yes. So a couple of things on this, and I will probably say the first thing is, you know, we are getting into that process of moving into that mid mid cycle. You know, the, the in a way, you know, the announcement by the Federal Reserve about the tapering just extended that recovery cycle where cyclicals continue to, you know, outperform. Now, yes, we did hit a little bit of a break in the summer because of Delta, but, you know, we continue to see that cyclical, you know, position. And we still think there is probably another quarter to actually go to answer your question, John. You know, where you can still go around those things where we'll have these supply demand disruptions that will, you know, help energy, that will help industries, that will help financials. Now, we, you know, we always encourage our investors to rebalance their strategy. And this is an interesting time because a negative yeah. month like September allows them to be proactive, especially in tax loss harvesting. And this is probably one of the things that is the most important in wealth management. Um, I thank you, sir. Omar Aguilar, a Schwab Asset Management, the CIO and Head of Investment. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.